our series in the book of James today. Years ago, Lois and I were out with the family, and we were in Ohio, and we were, it was in the uh, summer at time, and we were in on uh, State Route 13, and there's a little spot where State Route 13 runs north, and the Licking Valley, the Licking River runs north, uh, and the railroad runs north. And right, right north and south, and right there, there's a little uh, brick gas station. It used to be a gas station, and it hasn't been a gas station for years. It's a, it's a roadside stand. And that particular day that we were driving by St. Louisville, there, was a, there were peaches for sale, peaches from Georgia. And we thought, well, let's see how, how they are. So we stopped that day, and it was years ago. We stopped that day, and the fellow that was selling says, go ahead and try one. And he handed us a peach, and we tried them, and if, we had, if we'd had the money, we would have bought them all. They were so good. And so we bought a bunch of peaches that day, and, the little, and, and I remember that day so well because they were just perfect. And when a peach is just perfect, the family just gobbled them all up. It reminded me of a, a, a little miniature biography that I was reading in my study one day about a pastor from Cambridge in England whose name was Charles Simeon, who everyone knew was a really great pastor, but he had some personal areas where he needed to continue to grow, right? And in this little biography, here's what it says. The most fundamental trial that Simeon had and that we all have was himself. He had a harsh, self-assertive air about him. One day, early in Simeon's ministry, he was visiting Henry Venn, who was a pastor 12 miles from Cambridge at Yelling. When he left home, Venn's daughters complained to their father about the pastor's manner. Venn took the girls to the backyard, and he said, pick me one of those peaches. But it was early summer, and the time of peaches was not yet. They asked, why would you want a green, unripe peach? And then Venn replied, well, my dears, it's green now, and we must wait. But a little more sun and a few more showers, and that peach will be ripe, and that peach will be sweet. And so it is with with Mr. Simeon, and so it is with you, and so it is with me. We have the prospect of being a, a ripe peach someday. Now, of course, there's a, there's a better way of saying that, and James said it this way, count it all joy, brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing, or a sweet peach someday. I, I can't stand it when people give me book recommendations. When they do that, then I have to buy the book. And we have a book recommendation for you to, to, uh, today. When I was a little kid, we would get those Scholastic Book Club leaflets, and I wanted to buy one of everything. And my parents always made sure I had enough money to buy at least one or two. And now God has blessed me with 10,000 books. But the book that we're going to talk about today is a very, very special book. It's an arresting book. It'll grab you by the throat. It's an epistle. James, the epistle, has five chapters has 108 verses. It had 60 commands, straightforward commands. It's this Galilean, the half-brother of Jesus, James, like his brother, was a straight shooter. He used clear, concrete, common language to describe things. He frequently used illustrations that were drawn from nature and from common life, like horses and ships and forest fires and flowers of the field and heavenly lights and grapevines and fig trees and fountains and The book is uh, short and direct and clear and simple and practical and helpful. 
It's a great book. I recommend it to you. Who wrote it? It was James. James, the common name, means Jacob. He was the, this James was not the martyr, though he would later be martyred, the half-brother of Jesus. You, would, you could say that, that James, who didn't come immediately to faith in his half-brother, Jesus, has written us a book about how any of us can have a family resemblance to Jesus. James, as you know, was a prominent leader in the New Testament church in in Jerusalem. He headed up the Jerusalem council and he presided before and after that. And the book is written to Jews in particular who were scattered living outside of Israel. And because of that, the book has kind of a universal and timeless feel, like it applies to all of us, and it certainly does. The circumstances of the writing of the book were a time of hardship. Uh, These people were scattered. They were tribes that were scattered, in, in a sense, refugees. Keep in mind the backstory of the letter as you study it. It's written to people who are suffering, who are enduring great trials, who are going through great hardship. And yet it's a book about how a person can have a faith that's genuine and real, implying that it's possible, not only possible, but likely that if you handle your hardships right, then you can have a genuine faith even in a difficult time like that. And because they're scattered, this, the, the, the gospel is, is providentially spread because people who have real faith, when they're spread out, they spread the gospel out. And so they didn't live in their homeland. They didn't live in their heartland. They lived for a time and a place that was yet to come. And this is one of the oldest books in the New Testament, written before the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. Some people think in the 40s, maybe in the 50s AD, before the Jerusalem Council, described in Acts 15, the oldest book in the New Testament. And the basic theme of the book, as you know if you've already read it, and I'm sure you read it in preparation for the series, is in chapter 2, perhaps in verse 26, when it's talking about if your faith is real and if it's real and genuine. And the form of the book is interesting. It's, um, it's, some people say the book is the Proverbs of the New Testament because it has that kind of form. But also, students of James have studied James alongside the Sermon on the Mount, and they've noticed dozens of points of congruity between the two, almost as if Jesus' half-brother is writing a letter that is a commentary on Jesus' most famous teaching, the Sermon on the Mount, and you can dope that out on your own. I like to read Jan Karen. She's a novelist that writes about a pastor, and the pastor's an Episcopalian rector who's full of wisdom and wit, and he's good at pastoral care, and never really says if he's a, a great preacher or a great leader, but he's a good pastor. And the stories that have Father Tim Cavanaugh in them are good for pastors to read. But there are two books that are, that are written by Jan Karen that she puts into the pen of Father Tim Cavanaugh. They're, they're books of sayings. Patches of Godlight is the first one. You should run and buy this. And A Continual Feast. You should buy that too. And these books are as if Father Tim Cavanaugh had taken the journal and he had written pithy sayings in them. They're actually written like in a, in a fake handwriting. They're, this is a little bit what we have when we get to the book of James. It's like best of, straightforward, uh, very practical, very, very helpful, great stuff for summer, much of which stands alone. And, and, and if ever before in the history of the world, people needed to meet Christians who were real, it's now. People now commonly say all followers of Jesus are fake. People now commonly say 
all those religious freaks are hypocrites. And like never before, people need to show the reality of a living faith. In other words, they need, we, want to be, we want our lives to really reflect the beauty of Jesus. Our world's not really against Jesus. They just kind of hate all of his followers, right? That's kind of the common thing. And so it's important that those of us who follow Jesus are like Jesus. And that's part of the whole discipleship thing that we're about. So as we, as we kind of launch into the uh, study of the book of James, we're going to study verses 1 through 11 in James today. And I'm going to call this message, and you'll understand this later, God's South-Facing Window. James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Let's read the text together. Take your Bible. I preach from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Uh, and so if you want to follow in that, may grab a copy of that version. Otherwise, maybe it'll be enriching for you to read another good translation of the Bible. This is uh, James chapter 1, verses 1 through 11, our text for today's message. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives graciously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Help me, Jesus, as I teach James to the people gathered here at Bethel. So we have this rich and wonderful, ancient, powerful, practical book in our laps or or on our phones? And how can we get it into our life? One of the things that James is going to talk about first to these suffering people is real Christians, people with real faith, they suffer well. They suffer right. They respond properly during suffering. And for sake of, uh, for sake of the delivery of a message, let's just keep this simple. By me going through the text today and giving you four ways to suffer well, if you will, or four ways to to sanctify your suffering unto God so that you can actually do what is counterintuitive and that when suffering or difficulty or troubles or trials come, that you can actually say, well, I'm just going to rejoice anyway. Now, I know from personal experience, it's possible to go through a crucible of painful, unjust suffering and still have a supernatural sense of joy in your heart. And that's why he says, my brothers and sisters, and the word there is, a, is like uh, siblings, brothers and sisters, count it all joy. Consider it joy when you fall into variegated trials, all kinds of different troubles. Consider it joy. And he's saying, why? Because I'm doing something. And so that would be maybe the first thing that you could say. First thing that you could say to sanctify your troubles, rejoice, God is up to something good. Rejoice. 
because God is up to something good, because God is doing something. We have a saying in our home that when something happens that we don't understand, we recognize it is passed through the sovereignty of God, through his fingers, and it's not something we like or would have wanted. We go, okay, God, we know you're up to something. We don't know what it is, but we, we're looking forward to finding out. I think sometimes we find out in this life, and maybe many times we won't find out until we go to heaven and we can see the other side. But that's what you have here. Count it all joy. This is in verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers and brothers and sisters, when you meet whatever trials you're going through of various variegated kinds. You know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness has its full effect that you come to the sweetness of a ripe peach, right? Perfect, complete, lacking nothing. So this is a wonderful uh, implied promise. James, the, the, the half-brother of Jesus, writing, his authority is that, you know, he's a servant, not the, the brother of Jesus, that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's saying to us, it is possible for you to grow, like our brother was sharing this morning. Hey, thank you for putting up with me when I was young. Man, I could say that, I could give that testimony over and over again. I like to believe I'm still growing. I want you to know you were a part of that. That's beautiful, isn't it? How many of you have, um, you, got, you got saved, you got perfect, and you don't need to grow? Raise your hand. You see if the, look around, the people with their hands up are the worst among us, right? That's just like, are you kidding with me right now? And so the first thing to remember is when troubles come into your heart, when troubles come into your life, when trials come into your life, make a, make a choice to rejoice. Choose to rejoice because God is doing something. Now, the natural thing is for you to say, okay, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, that... I'm, I'm not sure I understand how that could possibly be true, right? The natural thing is, are you kidding me right now? I got trouble and I'm supposed to rejoice over this? And so then it says what? Verse 5. Well, if you lack wisdom, ask God. If you don't understand this, this is the context of that asking God for wisdom. If you're going through trouble and you're struggling to obey the command to rejoice, then pray for God to help you see it his way. This is the way I like to see it. I want to see the face of God in my trouble. God may have allowed it, certainly doesn't cause evil, but because he's all-powerful, because he's sovereign, I just want to see the face of God in my trouble. It helps me not resent my troubles when I recognize the face of my beautiful Heavenly Father. When I was a boy, I felt like all the men in my life spoke a dialect I didn't understand. When they played basketball, they would say things I didn't know. Box out. I'm like, do you hit somebody when you box out? They say, no, when you box out, you're not supposed to hit people. Oh, I don't understand. Get out of the zone. What does this mean? All the adults, as I looked around, all the adults understood it. There were so many things they said I didn't understand as a little boy. But I was blessed. I was blessed to have a dad that was very sensitive and tenderhearted, and he decoded my life for me. When we got alone in private and we would be driving maybe to make a hospital call, my dad would, would say, now, Kenny, when they said box out back there, here's what they meant. And he would decode. He would go right through my troubles. He'd go right through sports. He would go through, you know, the, the evening news. And my good father would decode my life and help me understand people, listen, you are not alone in this world. You have a heavenly father who loves you. He adores you. He delights in you. He loves it when you ask those little questions out of your heart. God, you're going to have to help me with this. He will help you. He's a good father. There's no father greater. He's your, 
Heavenly Father. That's why. And James knew that. That's why in verse 5 he said, And if any of you ask, lacks wisdom, let him ask God. And listen to how, how God has described his character. He gives generously to all without reproach. It will be given to him. He's not the father who says, that's a really stupid question. <laughs> He's not the father who says, look, I don't have time for this right now. He's that father. I was on a plane one day, and I was flying into Chicago. And as we looped around Lake Michigan, around, around the city of Chicago, over, over Lake Michigan, I could hear a conversation behind me. It was a young dad and a little boy. I never saw him. I just heard him. And the little boy never stopped talking. His name must have been Kenny. He was just talking back there. And he was saying to his dad, what keeps the plane up? Are the, are, the, are, the, are the wheels down now? And he just, one question after another. And instead of dad saying, you know, look, son, listen, be quiet. You know, I'm trying to read or, or you're irritating me. I just heard is every time that little boy asked a question, his father had an answer, a patient, loving answer. This is the father that we have when we're going through trouble. This is how he sanctifies our trouble. This is how you can sanctify your trouble. One, choose to rejoice when you're going through trouble, recognizing God is helping make a sweet peach out of you. Two, when you don't really understand what he's doing, just keep asking him. Now you think there's another thing, and that is like, well, you know, um, it's just super easy to give up when you're going through trouble. It's just super easy to get, just to be overwhelmed with that. And the, and the scriptures address this too in verses six through eight. It says this in verse 6, but it, let him ask in faith with no doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's double-minded. He's unstable in all of his ways. This is a frightening little piece of this. James is saying this, consistently turn to the Lord and always turn to the Lord. Here's what I have noticed in almost 40 years of pastoral ministry, and that is when people go through trouble, it's going to be either good or bad, depending on where they turn. When you go through trouble, you either turn away from the Lord or you turn to the Lord. Am I right? What was the last trouble that you went through? And, that, and what really scares me, what frightens me, what makes, makes my blood run cold is when I see somebody go through trouble and then turn away from the Lord. Or, or even some people... They just don't consistently turn to the Lord. They're so inconsistent about who they rely on. You know, they'll show up in church when it's convenient. They're missing when it's not. They go through trouble. Here they are. And now the next time they're discouraged. And they're very inconsistent. They're double-minded. They, they, they can't depend on an answer from the Lord for anything. They're unstable in all of their ways. What, what James is saying is people who are able to suffer well, that's going to turn out in Christian maturity are the people who just consistently, consistently, consistently go back to the Lord when they're in trouble. It's their default. I'm always going back to the Lord. That's where I naturally turn. That's who I naturally cry out to. Lois was telling me the other day that she fell or stumbled or tripped or, no, no, she was moving a, a sewing machine and I wasn't, I wasn't there and Hope and mom were moving a sewing machine because she only has 17. She needed 18 sewing machines. And so, I, I'm just kidding, right? And she, and she pinched her hand, and I said to Hope, what did your mom say? And, and, and she said, she cried out to the Lord. I'm like, yeah, that's my girl right there. 
You know, you, you know, I'm not sure that every time we pinch our hand, we reach that level of maturity. But it's good to know that every once in a while when we, when we stumble, when we hurt, our natural response is, oh, God, you're going you're gonna to have to help me. I'm going to need your help. Friend, I, I want to tell you something. You're going to have trouble, okay? Your marriage is going to be troubled. Your kids are going to break your heart. Money's not going to work out right. You're going to run into bad health, right? What are you going to do then? You're going to rejoice. When you're confused, you're going to talk to the Heavenly Father. And then what are you going to do? You're going to keep turning to the Lord over and over again and never turn to anyone else ever. That's what James is saying. People that are able to sanctify their suffering, suffer well, rejoice in their sufferings, ask God for wisdom in their sufferings, are consistent to turn to the Lord in their suffering. This is just true. That's in, now, there's another section of this, and I would have you see it, um, and that is in verses uh, 9 through 11. Madeline Lingle once said that, told the story, I don't know if it was apocryphal, that serves its purpose, whether or not it was true. She said a rabbi was once asked, they said to him, the, the, the rabbi says, what we do is we take the truth of God and we lay it on the heart of the student. And then a, the, the young man said to him, well, why wouldn't you take the truth of God and why wouldn't you put it into the heart of the student? Why would you lay it on the heart? He goes, oh, because they wouldn't be ready to receive the truth yet because you see the heart has to be broken before the truth falls into it. And if you don't understand that yet, walk with the Lord for a while, you'll understand that. Something that was taught to you when you were a little child, but you know, before you were tested by the trials of life, it's just lying on your heart. It's true, but it's just lying on your heart. And then someday when your heart breaks, when your marriage ends, when your kids hurt you, when you're deeply disappointed, when you lose your job, when you failed in a terrible way, it'll just break your heart and the truth will beautifully fall into your heart and it will take root there and then you will learn, you'll really learn that, that truth. Now, here, now here's a beautiful section and the final one here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. That's a, a strange thing to say. You're lowly and implied in the verses like you're poor. This is written to exiles, probably refugees, you, you run away and you leave all your stuff. You can't get a job. You're living on the bad end of town. Your children are hungry. I don't know what it looks like. Probably something like that. And so you're poor. And you, and you, you don't have a means of, of your, working your way out of that poverty. And then he, does, he says this. He says, let that lowly poor brother boast in his exaltation. And then the rest, he talks about the rich person, which you kind of, James generally personifies them as other people. The rich people aren't the subject of the writing in James. The poor people are the subject of the writing. And the rich people are the other people, right? And they're usually godless and they have stuff. And then not necessarily you're godless if you have stuff. It's just the way the book is written here. The rich should boast, implied, boast in his humiliation. Get it? The lowly brother boasts in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. The sun rises with its scorching heat, withers the grass, the flower falls, its beauty perishes, so will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. So James is saying this. James is saying there, there is a way that God sees the value of things, and there's the way that we see the value of things, and they're exactly opposite. In other words, 
material things are not ultimate riches to God. Our collections are not ultimate riches to God, right? Our comfort is not God's ultimate purpose in our life. What God's ultimate purpose in is our character, our Christ-likeness, the genuineness of our faith. That's what's valuable. And we won't see that until the great reversal comes. There's a great reversal coming, right? When, when, when Jesus appears, when he reappears, right? When he returns and he appears, then all the values that are, everybody will see. Get it? And, and we won't value our collections over our character then right? We won't value our comfort over our character. We won't value our little petty personal kingdoms over what we did for God's kingdom. Right, right then, we'll see eternity and the things of God and what matters and what's valuable and what he really cares about and what we should laugh about and what we should weep about and what we should invest in. We'll see it then. That's the time of the great reversal. And when you're going through trouble, that's a good time to say, remember the great reversal's coming, right? So when you're suffering, Rejoice, because God is up to something. When you're suffering and you're having trouble understanding it, remember to ask God. He's a good father that loves to answer your childish questions. And when you're going through trouble and you want to sanctify that trouble for God, then by all means continually and habitually default to going toward God instead of away from God and remember the great reversal that's coming. You know, um, one of the greatest uh, Christian books that was ever written was Pilgrim's Progress. If you read it, it's a story of the, of, it's, a, it's an apocryphal legend of the Christian on his way to the heavenly city to God. And what's really interesting, and I remember this one night when I was walking through a mall a few years ago, I was going through a mall, and, I, and I, was, I was walking through the mall, I realized that one time I was walking through the mall and I saw these stores and I used to th- and I would think, that's just ridiculous. Why did you waste their money on this? You know, they're so empty, they're so materialistic. And then I saw the Apple store and I go, hold on just a minute. <laughs> then I realized we're no different really. We all have our trinkets that turn our eye, turn our head, right? I walked through the mall one, one night and I noticed, you know, there's a lot of just stuff people didn't need. There's a lot of behavior that really wasn't real Christian. There's a lot of appearances of people that were like people who are clearly, it wasn't a gathering of Christians, right? You know what I'm saying? I went home that night and I was thinking about Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress and the, and, and the town that he talks about, Vanity Fair, the fair that runs year round. And it's, it's along the path, it's along the Pilgrim's Path is this town called Vanity Fair, or this place called the fair that is in vanity. And he writes about it in, in this way, and I'll read this to you. Um, he says, Then I saw in my dream that when they had got out of the wilderness, they presently saw a town before them, and the name of the town is Vanity. That, of course, you know, means what? Empty, emptiness. And, and at that town, there's a fair kept called Vanity Fair, and it was kept all year long. Therefore, at this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses and lands and trades, places and honors and preferments, titles and countries and kingdoms and lust, pleasures, delights, masters and servants of all sorts, whores, bods, wives, husbands, children, pearls, precious stones, and whatnot, lives, servants, masters, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, and moreover, at this fair... They're at all times seen juggling, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, rogues, and that of every kind. Here are we to be seen too, 
And that for nothing, thefts, murders, adulteries, false swears, and that of a blood-red color. So along the path to paradise is a place called Vanity Fair. And it's the place where you're going to be tempted to buy into things that in the great reversal you're going to realize are worthless. And the Christian has to make his way through Vanity Fair. But God will help you. Do you know how he will help you? You'll wake up with vertigo some morning. (laughs) And for the first time in almost 40 years, you won't get to preach. And you'll turn your little computer on and your tears will run down your face while you watch the service. It was a beautiful service last week. And God, and, and a Christian says, like, well, God, why did you let me get so sick this morning? I couldn't even get out of bed. And I listened to the voice of the Holy Spirit. He says, well, look at the men that are preaching. I wanted them to preach today. They had a word to say. I'm like, okay, Lord. And, and, and if I say you don't preach, even if you've preached consistently for 40 years, you're done. Okay, God, I humble myself. I realize I only preach at your disposal. And when you're done, I'm done. Thank you, Lord, for letting me have this great privilege of giving people a spiritual direction. And there's that, like, and Ken, don't ever take vertigo lightly. When your people have that, you need to be very sympathetic with them. That stuff is awful. (laughs) Thank you for your comforting words. So many of you comforted me. Hey, some of you said, my aunt had that for years. I'm like, please don't tell me that. (laughs) I don't ever want to have that again. And then the Lord said, and I told you to eat your vegetables, didn't I? You know, so you learn, right? I went to the hospital last Saturday night. Hospital, I was just so sick. I just thought, okay, that, that's it. I'm, I'm going to get dehydrated. I'm going to be in bad shape. And I said, oh, Lord, can you take me to the hospital? So I go to the hospital, and I go in there, and I'm <laughs> stretched out of the hospital. And they gave me some stuff that helped me. So I super, they did a really good job at the, at the ER there really good people, did a really good job. I was really grateful. Probably going to pay a lot of money for that too. But anyway, they, uh, while I was laying there, Lois and I were talking and, and we were praying and an ambulance came in. And um, I thought, ooh, you know, somebody came in an ambulance. That's, they're worse off than me. And then a little bit later, you could hear on the intercom, intercom they were calling a certain doctor into a certain room for trauma. And I said to Lois, man, that really doesn't sound good. Maybe we should pray. And Lois and I stopped right then, and we prayed for whoever that person was. Now, here's what we didn't know. That person has visited our church. Uh, That that young man, Ryan, he's uh, the Perrine's neighbor, was unloading a zero-turn mower, and it landed on him. And while he was pushing it off, he broke his back. So he's in a hospital today. He's very, very open to our churches helping them. With, in a lot of pain. And one of the things that they said uh, together, Blake and Ryan, they said, we wonder wh- why God let this happen. And that's the way it works. God takes suffering, hardships, difficulties, reversals, and if we respond the right way to them, it brings us to maturity. When, when I was... Uh, when, I was, when we were young, and Lois and I married, we, um, we uh, had a little apartment in Ohio, 
and uh, it was the top of a farmhouse, the upstairs of a farmhouse. And we went to, uh, we would lie in bed at night with the windows open and we could smell, you know, the, the, the new mown hay, the fragrance of that blow, the curtains. And, and um, but one of the things about the, the little apartment that we didn't realize was one of its most beautiful features was, uh, were three big uh, double hung windows that faced directly to the south. They were a huge south facing window. I'm the kind of guy that gets a plant and then neglects it and then it dies. Lois is the kind of person that gets a plant and then buys more plants and then more plants and then she waters them and they flourish, especially in a south-facing window. And I have the sweetest memory of our first apartment and that window just full of flourishing life because it was a south-facing window. What I'm here to tell you is that as sad as it is when you go through trouble, trouble is God's south-facing window. It's a place where you can really grow. And one day when we look back, we'll be glad that we did.